You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Heck of a day for Tiger at the Masters. We're going to break it all down from Augusta. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. Let's head over straight to the Shell Penzo performance line. Marty Smith joins us there in that line with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Marty, thanks so much for the time. Obviously, you're at Augusta, and these are strange times. How does one have a Marty party when there isn't a crowd to party with? Well, I can tell you what, brother. Uh, they serve beer in the media center at Augusta, <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm actually uh, having one right now. Um, Good beer or so like, weird? Like... The last couple of days, I was stationed down at Amen Corner for our coverage on Plus and on Sports Center and what other various platforms we were we were on. And man, I was the only person down there. Of course, groups would come through during their practice rounds, but it was so oddly quiet. The only thing that you could hear was the occasional caddy competitor conversation that you might be within earshot of and the occasional splash from somebody hitting it in Ray's Creek off 12. And it was just such a weird juxtaposition between what makes the Masters so magical, and that's the people. They're the passion. They're the intensity. They're the energy. And it's a, uh, it's it's really an energy that is incomparable. It really is. And all of us have been blessed to attend and, and cover amazing sporting events on massive platforms. But the Masters is just its own singular magic. And the fans not being here this year, is it's very palpable. You can tell. Well, and Marty, part of it, too, is there's a sort of um, selectivity to the Masters. It's tough to get tickets. It's a, It feels like a big destination event for so many people. Someday, sometime, I'm going to get to Augusta. And so it feels special when you're there, more so than really any other tournament, except for maybe, you know, the Phoenix Open gets a little bit in a completely different way. It has its own special vibe. Um does it affect the golfers, you think, that much? Or is it more just the people covering it who are used to it being a part of their schedule and a part of their, um, you know, fun? It does affect the golfers. I mean, just consider this, Sarah. Tiger Woods shot four under today. And if it would have been a normal year, a normal Masters, with, with throngs of people milling about and following him everywhere he went, and – he birdies this hole or that hole. It would have been bedlam here. Right. I mean, it would have been bananas and nothing. I mean, I followed him. How many holes do we follow him? Five or six, seven holes we followed Tiger's group today. And we, I mean, nobody, we didn't hear anything. Yeah. And he's balling out. And so well, and for this opponents, so too. The psychological effects that that has on opponents when the crowd is going crazy for this guy that's already so intimidating, I imagine it actually might be better for some of the opponents to not be also charged with dealing with that. Yes, Andy North, our great, great golf analyst, said that to me. I do the Official Masters podcast. I host that, and it's so fun. And I had Andy on yesterday or maybe the day before, and he actually said that, Sarah, that he felt like the the lack of patrons would be – extremely beneficial to younger players because they don't have to manage that that pressure that comes with all of those throngs of people. And um, it's going to be so interesting to see who prevails here. Paul Casey had a tremendous round. 
he was seven under today. I chatted with him after his round, and he mentioned the lack of patrons and what a different experience it is. So it is. It's just a very – in every way, it's a unique year. Uh, but certainly this particular event speaks volumes to how different. We're talking to Marty Smith. You can obviously listen to Marty and McGee, and he mentioned the official Masters podcast. Be sure to check that out. Uh, when you did speak to Paul Casey, what surprised Casey through the round today? Nothing really did. Nothing really surprised him. I, I think he felt felt really good and confident coming in. Um, the greens are very, very soft because of all the weather. Uh, of course, the, the opening round was postponed for, what, two or three hours this morning. And so the course was very soft. And there are, what was it, 50 players? It's 50 players under par. I mean, it's unbelievable. So, and, and we're kind of expecting the same thing tomorrow. Now, it'll be interesting to see, especially with Justin Thomas, I think he has a great opportunity to win this tournament. And I know it's Thursday. And he's only played 10 holes. But he's five under, and he – I noticed something in him, guys, when we got here. And, and on Tuesday, the players came through and did their press conferences. And everybody was being asked about Bryson DeChambeau in a year when Tiger Woods is the defending Masters champion. And some people gave DeChambeau credit, Phil Mickelson being one of them, for completely changing his body, completely kind of rewriting – how the game is played right now with all of his length off the tee. But then there were the Justin Thomases and the Brooks Kepkas, who it's annoying. They don't want to talk <laughs> about somebody else to talk about that. They want to talk about their own game and how well they're playing coming in. And so I saw a little edge in Justin that I had not seen before from him when he did that press conference. So I think he's super locked in this thing. Let's talk about Bryson DeChambeau. There were sort of differing opinions last night. Caddy told us the wind is a bad thing for him, and with no galleries to block it, you know, if he if he has to hit a real high to keep out of that, and then you know, not getting that sort of specifics on the on the greens for him, a guy who usually likes to get into the analytics on those. What did you see today? And is it more about the people who said he's going to take on this course, or more about people saying the course is going to take him? I saw a very frustrated golfer. Um, he did talk to Tom Rinaldi after his round, and. He kept going back to, I had a decent score. But I think that he wanted to come out and attack this golf course with all that length. But he did say, and this is vital, even though he might be that much longer than his competitors, it's still about chipping very well. It's about being very adept with his irons and his wedges. And above all, it's about putting the ball. Because that, he said, is what won him the U.S. Open, and that ultimately would be what wins him the Masters. And so all that length is nice. Hold on. I have a great statistic for you guys. I just <laughs> have to talk. Uh, let's talk about something else for a minute so I can find this, find this awesome. You're sending your assistant Travis? Stat. You're sending your assistant Travis back to get the numbers? <laughs> okay, check this out. Yes, my assistant Travis has found the numbers. How great is this guy? <laughs> This is from my great friend, long time, one of the greatest golf writers of all time, Ron Green. 62-year-old Larry Mize averaged 247.4 off the tee Thursday. 27-year-old Bryson DeChambeau averaged 334.6 off the tee. <laughs> they both shot 70. Wow. Wow. Look at so, that. Yeah, you need that accuracy. You need the putting. Yeah. 
it's just uh by the way that round by larry mize was awesome but yeah i mean it's um the shambo is changing the game and he's kind of has has everyone sort of reevaluating what they do but uh it was interesting to see how frustrated it made some of those other guys who are phenomenal world-class top 10 players like we're we're good too and our way has worked too we're major champions too so i love that part of this i, I mean watching brooks kepka and DeShambo, there's no love lost there and i love it uh, i'm here for all of it all right Mark, in like 30 seconds we got to let you go here i gotta ask you still eating the pimento cheese sandwiches even though it's not the right time of year uh, you bet, and and that's one of the greatest rivalries at the Masters. It is pimento cheese versus egg salad, and many people will side on the egg salad. Uh, they will land on the egg salad side. I am a pimento cheese person. Taking a bite of the pimento cheese sandwich at the Masters feels like home. It's like taking a bite of the South. <laughs> oh, that is, Love see, it. I knew that about you, my friend. Marty, it's stay safe in Augusta. Thing. Thanks so much for the time. We <laughs> appreciate you. <laughs> Take care, guys. Appreciate y'all. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Joining us now on the Shell Penzo Performance Line, one of the hosts of the No Layups podcast, it's Raheel Ramzanali. Raheel, thanks for the time. Absolutely. How are y'all doing? Well, we're doing better. Well, no, I was going to say we're doing better than you folks out in Houston because we're not going through the tumult that you are, but I'm a Bulls fan. (laughs) So, yeah, we don't need to get into that. What went wrong? And why is this all coming to a head now as we see pieces of this team off to new places and it just, it feels like an implosion. It's been a wild week and you're right. And what went wrong is the same thing that always goes wrong. It's James Harden. It's tough. You know, he's a great offensive player. He's a phenomenal player to have on your team, but every time he falls short, right? And there's one constant factor that is him. We've seen Dwight Howard leave the Houston Rockets, Chris Paul, and he had a big brush-up after the 18 season, and they just couldn't get along, so he ends up leaving. Now, Russell Westbrook is the, the latest member to join the I Can't Play with James Harden, and there has to be some reflection. There has to be some reflection, almost like when I was in college, right? And it was always like I could not find a steady girlfriend, and I just said, it's me. I'm the problem. It's not the girls. It's me. You have to look in the mirror and realize that you are the problem, and that constant factor, James Harden, I don't know if he ever will. All right, so Raheel, one of the reports we've heard from many of our people is that the Stars aren't returning phone calls from anybody at this point. So as all of this has been going on in Houston, how involved in the conversation have the Stars been in the new regime and the direction of the organization? Well, Stephen Silas said that, you know, they did uh, talk, James Harden and Russell Westbrook, when the hiring process was going on, and there were some discussions there. And now, you know, representatives of Russell Westbrook's party have said that he wants to be traded. I don't know if the conversation took place with uh, with new GM Rafael Stone. So it, it's it's weird that they haven't talked and no communication at all. But I know from the initial process of the coaching search, there were some conversations. They were in touch. And Stephen Silas was over the moon about getting to design an offense with Russell Westbrook and James Harden just last week at his initial press conference. And it has changed so fast within just days. Raheel Ramzanali with us here on Spain and Feds, host of the No Layups podcast based out of Houston, our expert tonight on the Rockets. The problem with Westbrook is he's sort of lured in because of a relationship with Harden. They go all in on him with the contract and then again all in 
by saying we don't need a real center on this team. Let's play even smaller ball because of what we're doing with Westbrook almost playing the center position. So they made all of these moves to accommodate, and now he's almost impossible to get rid of because what other team can take on that contract, wants that contract, and is in a position that he would want to play for them? Yeah, that's going to be the tough part for the Rockets. You can demand a trade, and that's great, but the Rockets are not just going to make a move to just get rid of him and not get anything back. They leverage so much into Russell Westbrook, as you mentioned. Um, but again, this goes back to it's great that idea. You know, on paper, you go, "I want to play with one of my one of my friends," and it's great. But you never do business with friends, right? Like that's an old saying, and that's a reason that's out there. So they meet up and you find out like, oh, actually our styles aren't going to mesh and this isn't going to work out. I actually want to be a ball-dominant point guard that makes me the best player in Russell Westbrook. And James is like, well, I'm actually really good at that, if not the best in the league at that. So it's not going to work out. And now the Rockets, you know, again, whoever leaked it, they did no favors to the Rockets or Russell Westbrook because for the Rockets, what are they going to get back for Russell Westbrook? You're not going to get, you're not going to get fair value for Russell Westbrook. And if you're Westbrook, if you do get a great package, the new team that you do arrive on, guess what? They probably just shipped out some of the best players because they have to make that contract work out. So it's a it's a lose lose situation, and it's going to be a tough 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 trade to work out for a new GM off stone. What do you think would be re- reasonable? What can they get? Uh, you got to get back somebody. The expiring contracts would be great. Like the Hornets are a team that is uh, linked to the Russell Westbrook trade where you get Batum and his uh, $27 million, uh off the books next year if you're the Rockets, if you do end up making that trade. I think that'd be a good place for him. You could get some of those picks back maybe as well and start rebuilding because James Harden, in a couple of years, his contract expires. And even though Tillman Fertitta loves James Harden, do you re-sign him at a major deal? Because is he going to take a pay cut for you? Probably not, right? And if he continues playing at the level that he's playing, you're going to have to give him a huge deal, and then you're going to be stuck with a 34-, 35-year-old player that has a four-year deal worth a lot of money. You have to start thinking about rebuilding, and that's what the Rockets are going to try to do with this trade if it works out with Westbrook. Raheel Ramzanali with us here on Spain & Fitz. You can hear him on the No Layups podcast. I'm curious what you're hearing in Houston. Is it sort of, look, if we're losing D'Antoni and we're losing Daryl Morey and these guys want out, let's blow it all up. Let's start fresh. Poor Silas is coming in thinking he's got some superstars to work with. (laughs) But we're better off not clinging to this half-in, half-out where we never win a title, but we're never bad enough to draft high either. Is that what you prefer? Is that what Houston's talking about? Or would they prefer a future that still involves a Harden or a Westbrook? No, everything that I heard going into uh, going into this offseason, going into a coaching search was we are still in it to win it. That is the ultimate goal still. We want to win it. We still have James Harden and Russell Westbrook for their prime years, and specifically James Harden. The franchise loves him, right? And, and I want to bring that up in a second, uh, why that is an issue as well. But everything I heard was, hey, we're still in it to win it. Steven Silas has done a great job with the Mavericks, uh, creating a great offense that – put up historic numbers for the Mavericks, and we think he can do the same thing here. And then the Daryl Morey, uh, Daryl Morey thing was, a, was almost out of nowhere, like he's leaving. Okay, fine, that's okay, but we have his right-hand man ready to go. He's, he's trained for the GM position, and he's ready to go, so we're not going to miss a beat there. So it was all championship. It was all championship talk, and now Russell Westbrook uh, you know, kind of throws, uh, throws, throws a little wrench in this. 
Hill, isn't that the isn't the smart approach though at Houston at some point to your point, it's always been about championships. It hasn't worked. You look at the West right now, it's gonna be so good for the next several years. If there's ever been a time to just blow the whole thing up and start over, wouldn't this be it? Absolutely. I'm with you in that it's time to blow it blow it up. I thought it was time to blow it up. Uh, a couple of years ago, actually, and I was wrong in that when they, uh, you know, traded for Chris Paul, they ended up getting to Western Conference Finals. I thought it was uh, it was time to move on from James Harden after the Game Six against the Spurs, where he just said, "I, I don't even care anymore," right? Um, and, and to me, that was it. You know, James Harden has 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 his franchise just bending over backwards for everything that he wants, right? Hey, we want I want Russell Westbrook here. Okay, cool. Let's go ahead and go get him and leverage the future. James Harden, is, uh, James Harden is an only child syndrome kid to me. Like, I have an only child, okay, and it's hard to tell them, hey, you have to be accountable. And that was one of the big things in all the reports that came out was there's no accountability in this franchise when it comes to James Harden, whether it be one of his buddies, Russell Westbrook, giving him some feedback, hey, I think this is how you can improve. And he wanted none of that. That happened to my five-year-old daughter, too, unfortunately. I'm like, hey, you could do this better, and she gets really mad at me. That's what's happening with James Harden, and at some point you have to go, this isn't the guy. He's not the guy. Maybe he goes on and wins it somewhere else, a la Kevin Garnett. Maybe he wins it with the Rockets. Who knows, like Dirk Nowitzki. But to me, if I had to make the move, if I'm the GM, I would have traded James Harden. I just don't think he's the guy that's going to lead you to a championship. It's Spain and Fitz there. Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. Raheel Ramzanali from Houston with us here, co-host of the No Layups podcast. I'm scared for your menchies because anytime I've ever said anything about James Harden, uh, the Houston people crawl into my menchies and they don't get out. It's like a bed bug infestation. I'm sure you've dealt with that. Uh, (laughs) Before we let you go. I've seen you deal with those, by the way. The Houston, the Mm. Red Rowdies, that's that's what they're called, the Red Rowdies, because that's like a special... The, the special fan base over here that, you know, yeah. they come up well, to games, which is awesome. But I'm with you. Like, you don't want the Red Rowdies in your mention, but that's why we have the mute button. It's true, but it's not always just the Red Rowdies. <laughs> Sometimes it's your radio host, and then months after they try to fight me, they physically fight each other and get fired. But that's a story for another time. <laughs> Real, before we let you go, I know you're doing Movember. I'm, I have friends here who do Movember, and there have been some really remarkable stashes in the history of Chicago sports. But you're competing with the beard, how do you even try to grow facial hair that's going to make a, <laughs> any sort of statement in that city when you've got James Harden standing up with that beard? Look, it, 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 I, I dare everyone to go to my Twitter profile right now. You'll see my picture there. I was actually lucky enough to be selected as a November global ambassador oh. last summer. And uh, my picture with my it's it's like a it's like a desperado western mustache. You got to go look at it on my profile, and I think it, I think I hold my own against James Harden. Okay, because I'm called I was called the unexpected one on this campaign that they used. Okay, and I'm just saying, like when you see it, you're like, okay, this man knows. This man knows how to grow. You a mustache, do look right? like a villain in a western film. You look yeah. like you've got your six shooters <laughs> and you're about to have a duel. <laughs> It's impressive. It's it's almost Aaron Rodgers esque when he went quadruple denim with the mustache. Yes, that's a, that's a great one, and it was so funny. I like they flew us out to London, which was awesome and such a great experience. But they're like, "Hey, you're gonna have to keep this all week because we need you to do photos. We got to do a TV commercial <laughs> and this and that." And your boys is walking around London with this desperate mustache, and everyone's looking at me like. What is happening with this guy? And I'm like, I'm just trying to get my miles in right now. I'm just trying yeah. to run. Please stop staring. But uh, yeah, I am doing November, and it's a great cause. Everyone can learn about it at November.com. 
everything you donate is going to help out men that are dealing with mental health issues, with health issues. These are all, you know, like we help out charities that help men. It's such an important cause and so important to me. And I really appreciate you guys uh, talking about it. Yeah, for sure. If I were you when I was in London, I would have just said, I'm American. And they would have said, oh, okay, 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 and kept walking. No, no, I don't, uh, I don't <laughs> want to tell them I'm American. I don't, I don't want them to judge me that much. Yeah, yeah, nobody really wants to admit it at this point, but they would leave you alone about your weirdness. Uh, Raheel, thanks yeah. for the time. Really appreciate it. Good luck with the uh, the uh, hurricane of Rockets news. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you guys later. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. What if you were standing next to your teammate on the basketball court and you heard him say to your opponent, can I come play with y'all? Or some sort of iteration of that question. According to a report, Victor Oladipo said that in front of his Indiana Pacers teammates on a couple different occasions. Against the Raptors, against the Heat, even against the Knicks. And you've gone too far when you're requesting to go to the Knicks from anywhere. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Guests join us on the Shell Penzel Performance Line. And this story is an interesting one, Fitz. It's all allegedly so far. Victor Oladipo's sister is out on the socials asking which teammate is lying about this and why. But according to this story... Oladipo uh, is is making clear that he wants out. It's from Pacers reporter at the Indy Star, Jay Michael. And if this is true, and it would be strange to try to claim something like this that would be heard by others if it's not true, I don't know what you do other than find a way to get him out. And that's validating and rewarding someone for what seems like a, a pretty bogus thing to do. Right, that's the toughest part about it is when you've got somebody that's in this situation that's a star that you're relying on, not just a star on the court, but also a marketable star, somebody that makes your franchise more relevant just by being there. If he's using his time on the floor to openly campaign to be on other teams, the one of the interesting parts for me, Sarah, is that if that's happening, we're going to hear it this coming season because there's still not going to be fans in the stands as far as we know for most teams. Yeah, and I, think he's, I think if he was doing it, he's not going to do it anymore, Fitz. I don't <laughs> know that he'll keep it up after he's been exposed. I don't know. If you're brazen enough to do it in front of your coworkers, then you're probably still going to do it, Mike. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I just can't imagine. And this is really true for anybody. I mean, there's a reason why So for so many companies in corporate America, when you turn in your two weeks notice, they tell you just to go home because they understand that, you know, they don't want you sitting at your job and, and, you know, telling everybody how much better where your head is. Right. So like the concept of you and I sitting on air and this being the moment that you're like, you know, uh, we have a guest on Marty Smith on and you're like, hey, Marty, I'd really rather be on with you and McGee. Like, I, it, <laughs> even if you feel it, you don't say it to Marty. I mean, while you I'm do on that air. every day by going on with Shanae when you're supposed to be prepping for this show with me. No, that's a sympathy thing. I go oh, on for, oh, with Chanae just because oh, I feel bad for her. Right? Oh, okay, because she used to work with Gojo, and it's just donuts, yeah. donuts all the time. And look yeah, at my yeah. kicks. So here's the thing. <laughs> do, 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 you have to, do you have to question the Pacers and why superstars want to leave? Like, you know, you look at Paul George's exit and think it can't be much worse, and then you see this. But is this is this an indictment of the team or is it an indictment of stars who decide – to, to out to, to out themselves as as not team players as not good guys because I'll tell you I'm looking at some of the tweets all day from the local guys whether it's Jay Michael who reported it or Greg Doyle reacting to it out in the Indy Star 
And he basically said, don't the, don't let the doorknob hit you on the way out. Like you said, this was your city and it's not. It seems like a lot of anger for the guys and not a lot of the spin of how are the Pacers messing this up again and letting a guy go. Well, and I think that's the bigger part of the conversation because if there's anything that stars have learned in the NBA, it's that they run the league, right? So you can be a dominant star in virtually any market. You can be a superstar. You can make your contract money. You can make your endorsement money. You can really go out and get yours wherever you play. So this isn't the 80s or 90s where suddenly it feels like you have to move to certain markets if you want to have tremendous marketability and success. Victor Oladipo for NBA fans is a household name. So you've got to sit down at some point as an organization and say, okay, well, why are our biggest stars wanting to leave? Because if that if you can't fix that, then you can't have long-term success. I mean, it's not the NBA's not just about drafting well. It's about being sure that you're creating and fostering an environment that stars right. want to play in because at some yeah, point they have to Yeah, but then why is he play. asking if he could play with the Knicks? <laughs> Yeah, well, that, now that, that I got no answer for that. I mean, that's the one that really struck me. I mean, I I can understand afterwards when you're like dapping somebody up and you lean in, you're like, God, I wish I was on this team. Like yeah. I can understand that. Or send a text message. Right? Listen, it's it can't be that hard if you're in the NBA to get the text to get the number for a guy on another team. I'm sorry. I mean, listen, he wrote on Instagram. Victor Oladipo did. I'm a pacer, dog. I'm a pacer. I can't control the rumors, man. All the ones on the internet, I don't even know where they come from. I'm just in the background working on my knee, trying to get right for next year. So he's denying it right now, but obviously something to keep an eye on, Fitz. And again, to dig a little deeper and figure out, is it the way they treat their superstars? Is it just the market and maybe a a lack of belief that future, you know, big name free agents will come there and give you a chance to compete? Or is it you know, a, a quality problem with the superstars that are making their way out unceremoniously like these two guys. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can sometimes get pre-party, post-party, all sorts of content you can only get digitally if you subscribe. The other story in the NBA that I have not heard a lot of people talking about, which just blows my mind, Fitz, is the Toronto Raptors likely needing somewhere to play. We went through this. Before the bubble, how would they be able to get out of there? How would they get out of there? We went through this in baseball, right? What are the Blue Jays going to do? They're allowed to practice there, but only if they don't leave the hotel connected to their stadium. And then once they came to the U.S., they had to go back and forth in Buffalo. Well, now the Raptors are eyeing up a couple different places, and a report today adds Tampa as one of the potential landing spots. You remember, of course, the Canadian government still requiring non-essential travel to have a two-week quarantine upon arriving. That would not work out for NBA teams, even with the schedule expected for this season where you play a team a couple times every time. So that means the Raptors, it's it's not only fits the weirdness of like, let's just have a season somewhere where none of us live or play, but also let's keep pushing forward during a time where a country won't even let us in and out because of how serious it is. But let's play basketball. Well, and let's play basketball in what is presumed in many cases to be another hotspot area. Like yeah. that that's the other I realize right now it feels like everywhere's a hotspot. I, I will acknowledge that. But through the course of this year, there have been certain areas that we have seen hit harder, longer, more often. Florida has been on that list repeatedly. Crazy. Tennessee has been on that <laughs> list repeatedly. And there was a report that Nashville was also being considered. And I look at this and say, hey, they might be great sports towns. They, might, they may love the NBA. It could be a great home. But why are you putting everybody in the middle of a hotspot if you're going to have a temporary home? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and 
Fitz, I'm also, and I said this last night, I'm really curious to see players' reactions to the fast turnaround. So you're playing potentially on a new team, maybe with a new coach, maybe on less rest than you normally would have because you're coming off of the bubble. Now, of course, that stretch over the summer was like an off season, like a hiatus, but you still just played a pretty long stretch of games and playoffs, so your hardest um, for those teams that were involved. The other ones have had forever to sit around, but now you're asking them not to play in a bubble. So you're adding all those things together with a draft that's happening next week, and I'm just curious how many opt-outs there are going to be. Think about the consternation. Think about the struggles for some of these players to go to a bubble where they were promised the highest level of care and protocols and safety. Now there's none of that. Now it's just here's going to be a weird season with more back-to-backs because of scheduling, uh, with less safety, with more possible issues in terms of family, friends, everybody, you know, staying safe. I'm just really curious how many of the guys are going to think it's worth it, even with yeah, the money. Espe- especially because athletes look at other athletes. And one thing that I think was really – I said at the beginning of the NFL season that uh, they should send flowers to Major League Baseball because I think watching the struggles Major League Baseball had early on was sort of an eye-opener to athletes everywhere. Well, now as we see COVID uh, become a complication for all major sports that are still trying to get games played, if I'm an NBA player and then I've been a little bit on the line on whether or not I want to play, am I not looking at some of my athletic brethren that are playing in other sports and saying, man, it's not going well for any of them and I'm seeing some of the difficulties there and do I really want to be in that sort of a situation? I mean, I I think as you look across the landscape, they're not, pardon the pun, in a bubble in their mindset of watching everybody else struggle through this. So as much as they are intending to play December 22nd, I think there are a lot of hurdles left to happen before we can really rely on that. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Despite having done literally nothing yet in his role as manager of the White Sox, uh, he has been in the news almost every day. And today it comes with a very sad statement from the team itself. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Quickly, I will say that, uh, unfortunately for the White Sox, this is overshadowing good news um, because Jose Abreu has won the AL MVP award. And all I've seen so far is people asking what Tony La Russa will be cheersing with. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> instead of talking about uh, how the White Sox would be celebrating uh, this, uh, this player, this great player who led them to their first playoff berth in 12 years 33-year-old got 21 of 30 first-place votes, 374 points total uh, from the Baseball Writers Association of America, leading Jose Ramirez and DJ LeMahieu, um, or as Stugat says it, DJ LeMatthew, even though there's no T's in that word, in that name. Uh, but yeah, Fitz, instead of talking about that, we're once again talking about La Russa because the White Sox made a statement with zero teeth and really zero to say. This- Statement bothered me a lot, Sarah, and it bothered me because what they said is the usual rigmarole of uh, we take these things seriously. Rigmarole? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Rig- rigmarole? Is that? I always thought it was rigmarole. Yeah. Look at you. You're educating yeah. me on yeah. this. Uh, I, yeah, know, I like to you teach know? you about those words you invent. <laughs> you know, it's it's a skill like that. I, remember, I spent months reacting to a show that Stephen A's on. So I've learned from the best on just That's true. sometimes That's you true. just get going and you make up words, Sarah. That's what we do. <laughs> uh, so rigmarole. Rigmarole. Uh, then we'll go yeah. with that. 
the, it's the usual statement you expect in this situation. We'll say it that way. Uh, but the 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 part of it that I can't really compute is like you know my mind. I break it all together and try and piece it back together like a puzzle. So if they say they understand the seriousness of it, then it leads me to only one of two conclusions. One, they didn't know about it, and that would mean he lied in the interview process. But they've told us they did know about it, which means they didn't take it seriously until it became an issue. So I don't understand how stupid they think everybody is if they want us to believe, on the one hand, that they're taking the DUI charge seriously – but on the other hand, they didn't get ahead of it. They didn't tell anybody. They waited about the. They waited till the news came out and they reacted to it. And when you're reactive and not proactive, then that either tells me that you're lazy or you're treating me like I'm stupid. So which one is it, White Sox? Yeah, the timeline was that Larusa's second DUI, the the last one, famously involved falling asleep in his car at a stoplight, and there's a really unflattering video of the whole affair um, uh, on the internet. But this second DUI was in February due to what they claim was a filing in a wrong district or something and a number of normal things, according to the uh, Maricopa County, uh, the charges were not actually uh, entered until the day before the White Sox hired him. And then now it's still, quote unquote, a pending matter, which allows the White Sox to say they knew about it, but also wait until the severity of it is known. They said, as Tony LaRusso's attorney said in his statement, Tony deserves all the assumptions and protections granted to everyone in a court of law, especially while this is a pending matter. Once his case reaches resolution in the courts, we'll have more to say. The White Sox understand the seriousness of these charges. So if he somehow gets no punishment, they can sort of say, we're glad for the resolution of this. Let's talk baseball. If he does get punished, they can craft some sort of statement about how they take it seriously, how he says it'll never happen again, how yada, 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 uh, uh, so on and so forth. Let's talk baseball. It doesn't matter. The point is just they're delaying the inevitable of making a real statement about it because they know that this is a tragic situation where a hire that was criticized before anyone even knew about the second DUI only looks worse when you add it on. And I think Stephen A. on first take actually said the smartest thing about it, which is that for whatever reason, we look at the leadership positions in sports, coaches, GMs, front office people, and we give them more leeway than anyone. To sit up there and have months to think about this, knowing that you had that DUI charge out there and talking to folks like, do you know who I am, et cetera, et cetera. It reeks of privileged and, and privilege and entitlement. And certainly in this day and age, I think that we've learned on, on various occasions uh, throughout the last few months. The one thing that's incredibly alarming to me, guys, is that we will sit up there and let grown men who are in leadership positions, who happen to be white, get away with things we don't tolerate from kids trying to learn their way through life in their early 20s. We seem to hold youngsters who haven't even learned uh, about adulthood and manhood yet. We seem to hold them more accountable than we hold people in leadership positions. Mm -hmm. I think this is the latest example of that, and I think it's incredibly unfortunate. Hmm. I mean, he's not wrong about anything he just said. I mean... You think about it and we just think about the draft process for any athlete that's being considered in any sport. And they talk about how private investigators are hired and everybody digs into the background and we have to come out and, and they analyze everything that a kid has done in their life to figure out whether or not they're worth, worth millions of dollars. 
Was that not that same respect and process not given to Tony La Russa in this process of this hire? Did they not mm-hmm. take the same care with who they are giving the entire leadership of the organization to that they would to a kid that they're drafting? It makes no sense. And if I'm going to forgive uh, one side or the other when it comes to mistakes and learning from them, I'm far more likely personally to look at a kid and say, okay, hopefully he learns from that than I am an adult that's had their second DUI in this process. I mean, it's much harder for me to understand the process of learning from your mistakes when you're still making them and you are a grown-ass man. Yeah, not just grown-ass, but 76. And especially an issue like a DUI where if you have a problem wherein you're incapable of stopping yourself from driving a car when you've had too much to drink, then that time that you do that, and it is incredibly embarrassing, and in a lot of ways it affects a Hall of Fame career in ways that you can never recover from because people will continue to talk about it forever and watch that video and talk about that video, and you still don't learn enough to adjust your behavior, especially when you, of course, have the money and the resources to never have to drive a car again. That's where you wonder, what are his habits? Listen, I have people reaching out to me because of the rant I did on Around the Horn saying, you know, I've been at a, a restaurant where LaRusse's, you know, bleep canned and comes over and we got in a fight and, you know, all he just seems like a guy who likes to drink. And if you're going to be a leader of a bunch of guys and paid millions of dollars and in charge of a team that's on the rise, what does that say about you? Like, and to your point, it's not just age. We demand of athletes who I think have a certain responsibility, absolutely, but are mostly being paid to be athletes less than we we demand more of them than we do of people who are literally being paid to lead, to set an example, to teach, to show how to do things. And we've got that all twisted. And there's some, and this is no different than the the same harsh words I've had in some ways for my beloved Raiders and their handling of COVID at times. Like if you're John Gruden and you're standing up there saying, "Gentlemen, winning football games is about attention to detail." How can you say that with a straight face when you can't even get the attention to detail to keep your mask on during a game? And Mm -hmm. so I have to look at it and say, we always hear about coaching and uh, leadership is something that is about trust and it's earned, right? And it's earned from actions and it's earned from respect that's given. Well, I don't understand how you can look at somebody and tell them that they have to pay attention and do the right things and and make sure that they're handling the details the right way and being good men or women. I don't understand how you can do that while at the same time not acknowledging what you've done and why you shouldn't have a job because of it. And I can't say that loud enough. I mean, at at this point, if they understand, if the White Sox understand the seriousness of these uh, of the allegations against Tony LaRusso, they had no reason to announce the hire when they did. They could have waited. They could have looked at everything. They could have let it play out. They didn't do that. So now they should bear the responsibility for that. Well, and Fitz, it does leave you wondering. If they didn't need to make that announcement on that day and they did it then, did they do it because, you know, are, are they lying about knowing about it and they don't want to look like they didn't do their due, due diligence, didn't vet him properly? Something to keep an eye on as we look at the way they handle things. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. The Ivy League canceling winter sports. So uh, for anyone that doesn't remember, they were at the forefront of canceling college basketball when it came to March Madness time. They said, nope, we're out uh, when this started. They were at the forefront of saying, nope, we're not going to play fall sports. And now they have canceled winter sports. They've at least delayed spring sports for now, but they have canceled winter sports. And Sarah, I'll always go back to what my buddy Trevor Scales says, and we do college football work together. And he said, you know, he played football at Harvard, and he said, always look at the Ivy League, and it tells you what decision would they make if money wasn't a factor, because that's how they do things, and they've already told you the answer to that. 
Yeah. It, you know, it's something that I've said all along, and I know I'm an Ivy League brat, so I tend to side with, with my brethren, but some of the best epidemiologists and doctors and experts in the country are at these places, and they have never wavered, Fitz. They have never wavered. And that's unfortunate. As a, as a former Ivy League athlete myself, I feel for the programs and the athletes that miss out on these opportunities. But these are decisions that are being made based on what's safest and smartest without any tiny bit of greed, capitalism, self-promotion going on. And that, to me, is a a warning sign. Because last March, I was on the air here with Spain and Company, and the moment the Ivy League tournament got canceled, there was literally maybe a half a day or so of a couple complaints, and then the dominoes started to fall from everybody else. Now, we've, we've opened Pandora's box in a way that was not the case back in March when there was so much unknown, We've already played a bunch of sports mid-pandemic, but indoors, which all these sports are, you know, especially basketball, people on top of each other, breathing on top of each other inside with no masks, with tiny rosters, where you have a spread of three or four players, that's half, I mean, there's already one Cal State Northridge called off the whole season because six players opted out. One player's not allowed in because of travel restrictions from another country. They had six players on the team. They can't play. And that, that's what would happen if you had even a tiny spread. I'm just I'm still confused as to how basketball is going to work. And so I'm not actually surprised. I'm sad, but I'm not surprised that the Ivy League has already decided we had 144,000 new cases yesterday. How in the heck are we going to try to embark on a brand new season inside? Now that's some straight talk, straight talk, wireless, no contracts, no compromise. And it's the reminder, Sarah, to your point that this is just the beginning. And this is just the beginning of difficult questions. And it's why we said earlier, I'm not sure how the NBA can really plan on a start of December 22nd, because we have no idea what everything's going to look like now. But uh, again, when you've got the Ivy League turning around and saying, hey, we're out, they are trendsetters. And the other part of it is they've made these decisions and each time they've been ahead of it and each time. They've been right. Uh, that just has to be acknowledged here that they have yet to make a decision in their their want not to be involved in these sports where everybody turns around and says, well, that was the wrong play. So I got to give the Ivy League credit, and I think it's an eye-opening reminder to everybody that the decision not to play already being made for winter sports by the Ivy League is a real reminder that nothing right now is certain, no matter what we're looking at, no matter how much we want to talk about the future of sports throughout the course of the winter. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.